You are listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. To find out more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now a message from the series, Subjects from the Sermon on the Mount. Father, there is absolutely nothing that I can say that's really of any value to folks. Um, And this is a heavy topic this morning. Um... And you know who's in this room, and you know things about us that nobody next to us knows. And uh, I pray that your spirit will work, and there'll be some that may be convicted. There's some may, who may feel shame. There may feel some who feel victimized because of other people's choices. And nobody needs to hear me offer anything to that. We need you. So I pray, Father, that you will work and move and encourage <clears throat> through your word for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been at CBC for a while, you kind of know the way that we do preaching around here. We have a little rotation of who gets up here. And what we do is we preach verse by verse through the different books or topics that we're in. And we decide what we're going to preach on based on what the next verse says. And if some of you have flipped ahead or when you open your Bibles to the passage we're going to talk about this morning, probably on the headings of your paragraph, you're going to see words like lust. Or maybe your Bible's heading will have a word adultery or sexual immorality. And this morning, because the text talks about it, we're going to talk about those kind of things. And right now, maybe some of you are thinking, ugh, I mean, this is church. I don't know about this. And maybe some of you have a problem with the very fact that in a church, on a Sunday morning, we're going to talk about these issues. As I continue through the sermon, some of your, the little problem may peak then for you. You're like, I don't know. There's just something about this I don't feel right about. I have a problem with this. And I get that, but here's what I'd say to you. I don't think the problem is that we're talking about this this morning. I think that the problem is, for far too many years, far too many churches have failed to talk about what the Bible says about sex seriously and honestly. We haven't talked about it, and what we've done is we've taken that whole discussion out of our conversations and conversations about that topic we've let happen in other places. And instead of in a church based on God's word, having conversations about sex and what is expected of us, those conversations have been relegated to golf clubs, country clubs, strip clubs, locker rooms, and Cosmo magazine. And this morning, we're not going to do that. This morning, we're going to have conversations about it because Jesus has conversations about it. And here's the deal. Maybe for you, this isn't, this isn't going to hit you at all. Maybe because of your life stage or your story or what's going on, this will have no relevance to you. And if that's where you are, then perhaps this sermon is for your children or for your grandchildren or for your friend so that you can be of help to them. And maybe if you're here this morning and this doesn't resonate with you, then maybe the very reason you're here this morning is throughout the sermon to pray for those people to whom this sermon hits like a load of bricks. Because I'm telling you, there are people in this room who this sermon this morning, today, is just for you. So we're going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about it because Jesus talks about it. And Jesus talks about it in this conversation that's called the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in Matthew 5, verse 27. If you want to flip there, that would be fine. 
Um, and like we said, the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus is instructing his followers about what type of people he wants them to be. That if they're going to be in God's kingdom, this is what I expect of those people that are my subjects, that are in my kingdom. And it's very interesting that one of the top things that he instructs them about is what he expects of them in terms of their sexuality. Right? This isn't Bill or I coming up with this to be edgy or hip or we want to... Jesus... When he was talking to his disciples and he's talking to you and to me, and when he's trying to tell them what he expects of them, one of the first conversations he has with them is about what he expects of them as his subjects in terms of their sexual practices. And he starts that conversation in Matthew 5, 27, and he says it this way. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And what Jesus is doing, or what he's doing this whole Sermon on the Mount, is he's looking back over the Old Testament laws, and he's affirming them, but then expanding them. And what Jesus is doing is looking back at the Old Testament law and saying, listen, listen, listen. One of the things I expect of people in my kingdom is that you don't commit adultery. There's two different words, different terms used in the Greek for sexual practices. One is porneia. And we'll probably talk about that next week. Pornea is kind of this catch-all phrase that refers to any type of improper sexual practice. Any sexual act or sexuality outside the context of marriage is referred to as pornea, and it's the big catch-all. Wow, that was a good... I like that. I'll do that at the 11 o'clock. Okay, within pornea, one of the things that's a prohibited sexual practice is adultery. Adultery is two people having sexual relations when one of them is married to somebody else. And as we walk through this, we're going to see different principles about what God expects of his subjects in terms of sexuality. And the first principle we see is this, is that Jesus' followers avoid adultery. Jesus' followers avoid adultery. Now, some people may be thinking, man, that's it. I mean, that's no big deal. You let the kids go out of the room for that. Of course. Why are we even talking about this? Let's just move on to something else. Because this is a church. Everybody knows we shouldn't have adultery. Nobody in here has adultery. This is an issue. Let's move on to something else. But you know what? This is a real issue that people in real churches and maybe some of us in these real seats this morning face with. I've been involved in three different churches, one at a lay level in Jacksonville, Florida, one as a pastor on staff in Atlanta and Georgia, and then here at Community Bible Church. And in every single one of those churches, I dealt, we dealt with the issue of adultery. Adultery that occurred between people that you would never imagine. Between people who sit next to you every Sunday in church. This is a real issue for churches. And it's not an issue for us just to skim over lightly. And some of you know that. Because in your story, either this is something that you've done, or something you've been a victim of, or as a child, as you were growing up, this is why your parents got divorced, and you're feeling the aftershocks of that. And maybe some of you, it's not your story now, but you know what? The perfect storm is brewing. Because your marriage isn't the fairy tale you wanted it to be, and expectations haven't been met. And if there was just that opportunity for that girl to come along who gives me that spark that my wife used to give me, or if there was that guy that came that understood me and listened to me the way my husband used to, who knows what choices you might make. 
Adultery is a very real thing that we can't just skim over in one second with one little principle on the PowerPoint. And I've thought for weeks and prayed, how do we talk about this in a significant way? And, you know, I'm kind of a simple man, so I always come back to the same things. I drink a lot of coffee thinking about them. But what Bill and I and when Cain preaches, listen, we mean this. There is nothing that Peter Smith, Bill Fowler, or William Cain can offer to you that's really of any value. The most valuable thing we can offer to you is what God's Word says about issues. And so what we're going to do this morning is we unpack adultery a little bit. Is we're going to say, okay, what does God say about adultery? And we're going to look at the Proverbs and some Proverbs together. And there's three Proverbs in a row that, man, in very descriptive, rich, sometimes erotic phrases address the issues of adultery. We're going to look at those three Proverbs and see what God has said about it and draw some principles for ourselves about adultery. We're going to start in Proverbs 5. And we're going to be in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. And man, this would be one actually I'd love for you to turn there. And there's Bibles in front of you if you don't have them. We've seen that one of the things Jesus has said about his subjects is that Jesus' followers avoid adultery. We've got to unpack that a little bit and know what's really going on. I'm going to start reading in Proverbs 5, verse 1. We'll read these three together, and then we'll come up with some principles about them. Proverbs 5, my son, and this is what Proverbs is. Solomon, a wise king under the inspiration of God, is writing instructions down for people to know, particularly in this context, for his son and for young men. And this is what he says. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door to her house. Jumping down to verse 15. Even if you have the ESV which Bill Fowler has bronze on a plaque on his mantle. This is sanitizing the Hebrew because I've looked at the Hebrew. And the Hebrew here would make you blush because the phrasing is so erotic. And if you're hearing me read things about cisterns and flowing waters and fluids and breasts, and you think that sounds kind of racy, you don't even know how racy it is. And this is what we read. He says in 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, literally that lovely means a lovemaking deer. A graceful doe, let her breasts fill you, literally drench you. At all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Let's flip over to chapter 6. And Solomon is continuing instructions, and he's telling his son what he wants him to do. And he gives the reason for these instructions in verse 24 of chapter 6. And he says this, I'm telling you all these things to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty 
in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Picking up in verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation who refuse through you multiply he will refuse, though, you multiply gifts. And chapter 7, and we're going to read this in entirety. Um, and why don't, let's just stand. This is just such a powerful, descriptive comment about what Solomon wants you and me to know about adultery. He says these things, starting in verse 6 of chapter 7. And as I read it, I want you to listen to some things that we're starting to hear, common phrases about adultery, common principles that all of us are going to glean Verse 6, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, a man lacking sense, passing along the street near the corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute. Wily of heart, she is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with a bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifice, and today I've paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek your face eagerly, and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon, three herbs that in the Song of Solomon we see describe sex and this richness of sexuality. And then she says to this young man, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he is, will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, sons, listen to me. And be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her way. Do not stray into her past, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slaying are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Y'all grab a seat and let's unpack some principles we see from this. These aren't my principles. These are coming right out of the text. The first thing, as we think about the Jesus subjects, Jesus followers avoid adultery, as we think about what God has said about adultery, the, the first kind of thing we see about adultery is this. There can be something sexually or emotionally enticing about an illicit affair. There can be something sexually or emotionally enticing about an illicit affair. And we don't often say that, oh, sex is a powerful force. And sex has the ability to drag people who are just wading in the waters like a powerful undertow out to sea and drown them. And we see this from Proverbs. Look how it describes this adulteress. 
Her lips drip honey. It doesn't say she's ugly or nasty or scary. It says she is beautiful. It describes this beautiful, attractive woman. It says she's dressed as a prostitute. There's this beautiful woman who is, knows how to speak, but you know what? She's also dressed as a prostitute. And when this guy sees her, he's thinking, man, she is good looking and she is ready to go. Other descriptions, she kisses him. She talks about her perfumed bed. All this erotic language about the way that she seduces him. And what Solomon is saying through all of this is, you know what? There is something that is genuinely enticing, although forbidden, to this young man about this illicit affair. We keep going, and we see another thing from these Proverbs about adultery. Part of the reason that people fall into adultery is that they lack sense and they think they can manage it. Look at what the proverb says. Describes this man of lacking sense. And then there's this phrase, this great, great phrase. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can he walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? It's a rhetorical question that's kind of obviously going to say, no way, that guy's going to be burned. But it's also having another layer that's saying, but this is what this young guy thinks. This young guy thinks he can flirt with it. This young guy thinks he can play with fire and be okay. He thinks he can manage it. He thinks he can contain it. And he can't. Number three and number four go together. Adultery occurs in part because people are in places they have no business being. We hear about the man being out at night. And adultery results from a series of choices. From these Proverbs, two more principles. Adultery occurs in part because people are in places they have no business being. And adultery results from a series of choices. When we opened up, when we stood up to read Proverbs 7.1, we did not read this. A man has adultery with another man's wife. End of proverb. End of story. Right? That's not what Proverbs 7 is. Proverbs 7 was a description of one choice after another choice after another choice. Conversation after conversation that finally led this guy to be places where he shouldn't be. Look at verse 8 and 9. Proverbs 7, 7, 8, and 9 describe this guy walking around at night. And then what does he start doing? He starts walking towards the neighborhood where this lady lives. And then it says that he passes along the street, takes a choice to get a little closer and passes along her street. Then he makes another choice to take the road to her house. Adultery occurs in part because people are in places they have no business being. And adultery occurs because of a series of choices that this man makes and that some of you have made or maybe some of you will be tempted to make. When there were about, not really 10, maybe 80 of us, I used the illustration of ping pong. Probably only one of you were there, so I'm going to use it again. Because what we see in this Proverbs and what we see in our stories is this horribly devastating game of ping pong. Here's how ping pong works. There's this table. There's a net. There's two people on either side. And the people bounce the ball back and forth to each other. Somebody serves the ball. Ping. The other person hits it back. Pong. Ping. Pong. The game of ping pong ends when one person decides I'm not hitting it back anymore. What we see in Proverbs is as this guy gets in this horrible game of ping pong 
choice after choice. He's out late at night walking, making a choice to go closer to her house. Ping. This lady comes out of her house, beautiful, sexy woman, dressed like a lady that is ready to go. Pong. He doesn't run. He stays there and lets her engage him in conversation. Ping. She comes up and says, hey, man, I've been looking for you. Not anybody else. For you. For your face. Ping. He stays. She kisses him. Pong. She starts talking about the bed. Ping. Pong. Some of you may or are or have innocently started a game of ping pong that will lead you to disaster. It's a chilly morning. You want a pumpkin spice latte. You go to Starbucks. You notice the barista is actually kind of sexy. Ping. She smiles at you when she gives you the drink in this, man, kind of makes you feel good because you're 40, you're 50. You haven't had somebody smile at you. Ah, pong. You think the next morning you wake up and you think, oh, I got to get another pumpkin spice latte. You know, I'm going to go back to that Starbucks with that lady. She was nice. Maybe I can invite her to CBC. I don't know. (laughs) Right? But what you do that morning is, man, that cologne that women, your wife have complimented you, and you make sure you're wearing it. You make sure you look good. You make sure your hair's right. Ping. Pong. Ping. You have something going on in your life, and you go to your best friend's house, or you call your best friend about it, and they don't answer. They don't pick up the phone, but their spouse does. And you've always had this connection, and you think, uh, and they, you, you say, yeah, you know, I just wanted to talk about some stuff I have going on, ping. They say, well, man, I'd be happy to talk for a little bit. Pong. <clears throat> and the final thing we see, because in that moment, ping pong, let's just be straight. It can feel good. There is a reason people commit adultery. In that moment, that ping pong can be so enticing. But what we can't forget from this Proverbs is the last principle that adultery has horrible consequences. And, you know, different times, um, different times when people preach or I preach or who foul, whatever, you know, there's some sermon, there's a heaviness in the sermon. And I don't know. I don't know if I feel like you're big brother or friend or like that construction worker with that bridge that's out. But man, as your shepherd, as one of your shepherds, I care about you guys. And I'm just trying to warn you and trying to prevent some of you from falling off an abyss that you're walking on. And I want you to hear this, that adultery has horrible consequences. Don't be that guy thinking, I can manage it. I won't get burned. I'll just flirt. What does it say? This guy destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. He does not know that it will cost him his life. He will be on the brink of utter ruin. Now, is there forgiveness? Is there redemption? Does God's grace cover that? Absolutely. But are there consequences that are going to shatter your lives forever that you may not ever get away with? Yes. There are children whose parents right now are driving them all back and forth to mommy and daddy. They're not staying together in the same house. They don't know both their parents because one of the parents couldn't control themselves and played ping pong and slept with another person and that child's life is devastated. And so the question is, okay, if we know that subjects of Jesus' followers, Jesus' followers don't commit adultery, if we've seen these principles about adultery, that there's something sexually or most enticing about it, 
that people think they can manage it and that's why they fall into it, that they make choices, that they're places they shouldn't be, that there's consequences. What do we do about it? What are some super practical ways to avoid this? And I got a cup of coffee, not a pumpkin spice latte from the cute barista. But I thought about this, um, and I wrote down some things, and then I read, and I listened, and I thought, and I saw what other po- It's amazing that some of the suggestions I'm going to give, if you look at all sorts of other places, these are coming at us from all different wise places. There's so much similarity in the suggestions. Here are some practical suggestions. Ready? Don't travel alone with members of the opposite sex if you're married. Don't travel alone with members of the opposite sex if you're married. That's so legalistic. Maybe it is. But man, we need to do things to stop playing ping pong. Don't eat alone with members of the opposite sex. This one's important. Listen, don't, if you're married, don't confide in people of the opposite sex or look to them to meet your needs. Don't confide if you're married in people of the opposite sex or look to that person to meet your needs. And that's so easy, especially so often with your best friend's spouse. You guys vacation together. You hang out together. Man, be careful. Next thing, be very careful on Facebook and social media sites. If you're married, be very careful on Facebook and other social media sites. Because here's what's happened. And you guys, some of you know me. I am, I try to be holy. I'm not legalistic. But some of us need to start doing some of these parameters to protect ourselves. Here's what happens, right? Guys, men, we're not happy in our marriage. Our wife doesn't look like she used to. We're just not happy. We're working all the time. And we remember that old college flame or old high school flame. And she's our Facebook friend. And we think, man, let me just see what she looks like now. And you go to her profile You go to her wall, ping. And then randomly she emails you, posts a message, pong. And you start thinking, she looks pretty good. And you send her this little post like, I can't wait to our high school reunion. Women, you do the same thing. Your husband is not attentive. Your husband is not being what he should be, which is his fault. And you feel neglected. And you think back about that old high school or college flame. And man, the way he listened to you. And so what you do is you go back on his Facebook page and you say, I know that Billy Bob's married, but let me just see if he looks happy in his marriage. And then you look at the picture and say, oh, I don't know. His wife doesn't look that great and he doesn't really look that happy. Ping. Pong. Don't travel alone with members of the opposite sex. Don't eat alone. It's just wise. Don't confide in members of the opposite sex that aren't your wives or husbands and look to them to meet your needs. Be very careful on Facebook and other social media sites. And the last suggestion comes right out of Proverbs. It's personally my favorite suggestion. And here it is. Married people. This is from the Bible. Don't throw things yet. Look, I have my shirt tucked in and some pants on so I look respectable so you won't think I'm some young punk trying to excite. Listen, the last suggestion, how to avoid adultery from the Bible, have great sex with your spouse and have it often, right? It's up there. It's in the Bible. Okay, somebody's leaving. I don't know who it is, but I feel it. Get the cell phone. I'm getting out of this place. Listen. What does it say? I'm telling you, this is like, oh, rated X. 
What does the writer of Proverbs say in chapter 5? Husbands, drink water from your own cisterns. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in who? The wife of your youth. A lovely, dear, graceful dove. Let her breast drench you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated. The word intoxicated means just that rapturous, good feeling after sex. Be intoxicated always in her love. If you think I'm making it up, we heard in Corinthians where Paul says to people, husbands and wives, don't deny each other sex. Y'all have sex and have it often. And the only times you shouldn't is if you're going to pray or fast. Because what does Paul say? The having it, the not denying it will keep you from temptation. Okay, guys. Woo! I'm just telling you. Well, we'll see what happens. I told this to Casey. I said, you know, I sometimes I, well, all the time, I talk it out to my dog to see what, man, there was one moment where I was on him and he was like cowering in the corner because I was going for it. Okay, ready? (laughs) Who's, this is important, right? Listen, we can answer this question. It's okay. I won't tell your mom or your grandma or whoever's at whatever church that you don't go to. Listen, husbands, whose breasts are to satisfy you? Your wives. Listen. Let's be honest. This is why I'm glad the kid. Guys like breasts. God made breasts. But the problem is too many men are looking at two other women to be satisfied instead of being satisfied with their wives' breasts. Guys, listen to me. And I'm saying this as an advocate for the women in the room who if some of you don't change, they will be sobbing in our office to Bill or me or William or Harry McGee. Guys. Husbands, your standard of beauty is your wife, okay? Your standard of beauty is your wife. But what some of you are doing or have done or will do is look to that website, look to the porn star. That is what you define as beauty and sexual attractiveness. And then you take that pretend airbrushed fake meth addicted picture and you put that on your spouse and expect her to live up to it. And you're devastating and destroying your wife. You are to be satisfied by your wife's breasts. Do not look to someone else as your standard of beauty. Look to your wife and do not dishonor and disgrace and destroy her. And listen, what porn does? Porn is intended to create dissatisfaction with your wife. Porn is intended to create dissatisfaction of your wife and put this other thing out there as the pretend standard of beauty that you then hold your wife to and that's not fair of you. Your standard of beauty is your wife. All right. That was fun. We're not done yet. Get another sip of perk because we're going. Jesus followers avoid adultery. We've talked about some practical suggestions. If the sermon ended there, some of you would think, I've made it. Because I'm not even married. I haven't committed adultery. I'm good. Or some of you would think, well, I'm not going to commit adultery. I can keep myself from that. Or some of you would think, okay, listen, this is what I'll do. I will never, ever ride in the car with a woman. I will only ride with a man. No, I won't even ride with a man. I will always drive in the car all by myself. I'll eat meals. Ah! 
And some of us could do such a good job of getting up this little standard and keeping all the rules and thinking because we've never had adultery, because we've never done that act, because we've never ridden a car, that we are good. But the problem is our hearts can be so sexually filthy that we're not good. And Jesus says some other words to the people of that time and a group of people called the Pharisees who were saying that if you just don't do the act of adultery, who cares about what your heart or your thoughts are like? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you're going to be a subject of my kingdom, I need more from you. And Jesus says it in continuing in Matthew 5. He says this. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. He reinforces that idea, but then he presses it further in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I say to you that everyone who, are, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Heart. Jesus was talking to a very narrow audience about adultery, but now look how he expands it. He says, now everyone who looks at any woman, okay, let's not worry about adult. Anyone who looks at anyone with lust has just as much a problem in their heart as the people who are committing actual adultery. Now, a few things to unpack there. If a handsome man like myself gets up on stage and the ladies notice, Jesus isn't talking about when somebody who's attractive. I had to test it. I had to see if it worked. You're my guinea pigs, right? If a beautiful woman walks through here and men think that's a beautiful woman, that first thing registered, that first glance, okay, Jesus isn't talking about that initial book. Jesus is talking about what happens next. This word, looking, it's a present tense verb. It means an ongoing, repeated, continued action. It's not that first glance, but it's that very second glance after that. And if that second glance after that is with lustful intent, literally to desire that person, Jesus says, man, you've got some issues in your heart that you need to work out, even if you're not hopping in bed with another person's spouse. If you are looking even a second time, and you're looking with lustful intent. Literally, it means to desire that person. And this is important. The verb desire, that's not good or bad on its own, right? What makes the verb desiring good or bad is the object of that desire. The Bible says many places to desire things that are good. But this is saying if you are looking to desire something that you ought not to have or ought not to be looking at or isn't yours or is causing lust then you have some problems. The second, and let me say this, this is initially addressed to men, but also applies to you ladies. All right? Because you may not be as physically turned on, but emotionally you're turned on. And whereas a man may look with lust in his heart about body parts, you guys may look, ladies, with lust in your heart about that man who cares for you, and so sexually you want to please him and be with him, and ugh. And ladies, there's another way that this applies to you. If men are not to look lustfully at a woman, are you doing things to encourage them to look lustfully at you? I'm going to read something to you that was written in 1974. 
because this says it better than I could ever say it. I think we have a slide so you guys can read along. If lustful looking is a sin, then those who dress to expose themselves with a desire to be looked and lusted after are not less but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but that women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of the great majority of modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. And how much greater still is the guilt of most of their mothers to allow them to become lascivious temptresses. And let's not say it's the lady's fault. It's the and let's not be stupid and say, well, I'm looking at that, but I'm not really lusting. Jesus' followers are people that don't commit adultery. The next principle we see, Jesus' followers pursue a sexually pure heart. Which is hard to do, especially in this culture. And then the question is, good grief, Jesus, how do we do that? I mean, we're inundated wherever we go. How do we do it? And Jesus is smart and anticipates those questions, and he gives this explanation in the next verse. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Don't start tearing things out up there yet. People are excited. I see them getting those pens in the seat backs. (laughs) Not tear out your husband's eye. Okay, this is what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. This is extreme language by Jesus. Jesus' followers don't commit adultery. Jesus' followers pursue a sexually pure heart. And Jesus gives this explanation of the ways that we do that. And he's talking about gouging out eyes and chopping off hands. Okay, does Jesus really mean that we're supposed to do that? And this is what we can't do. We can't say just because it's extreme, Jesus doesn't mean to do it. That's not the proper way to approach it. But I think, and most think, that because it is so extreme, but yet would be so ineffective in really solving the problem, it shows that Jesus is talking in an exaggerated fashion. Because here's the deal. If I have a problem with lust and I gouge out my right eye, guess what I still have left? That's right. If I gouge out, cut off my right hand, guess what I can still do improper things with? My left hand. If I gouged out both my eyes, chopped off all my hands, cut off my feet, I could still be a sexually filthy pervert. And so could you. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, listen, listen. This problem of lustful looking and lustful desire goes way beyond just your eyes and your hands to the very depths of your heart. And associated with Jesus' exaggerated statement, though, is this other layer that in the Jewish culture, right eyes, right eyes, right hands, were things that were seen to have special value. They were things that were important. And what Jesus is saying is you can chop it all off, but it won't do any good because the issue's in your heart. But some of you are going to need to start chopping off some things and getting rid of some things that are costly, that will hurt you, that you will miss in order to deal with that deep 
problem in your heart. And the third principle we see from this about what God expects of you if you're his subject in his kingdom sexually is that Jesus' followers take serious steps to respond to the seriousness of a sexually impure heart. Jesus' followers take serious steps to respond to the seriousness of a sexually impure heart. And right now, Maybe there's one person right here who said, click. Yeah, that ping pong thing was kind of witty. You were funny when you talked about having sex with your wife, but man, I like my sin. I like it. I like looking at that person. I like having conversations with that person who's not my spouse. I like what I'm doing because that four minutes of rolling around the sack with a person and that 10 seconds of pleasure, I don't want to give that up. Don't tell me to stop it. Don't tell me to take drastic steps. And some of you right now, this is where, whoop, kind of put the walls up. No, no, Jesus, don't, no. You can have all these other things, Jesus, but my little sexual thing that makes me feel good, that makes me think I can control my life, that gives me a sense of hope and meaning, don't touch it. That's off limits. I can't do anything to affect if that's your opinion. I could throw things. That would be exciting. But I can't get into your heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And I have prayed that for some of you, he will this morning. Listen to me. This is what I can do, though. I can tell you where that path is going to take you. Because I can tell you what studies show about the process of sexual addiction. I can show you and tell you, and I will, the steps that people end up who are making choices, who have done things that they can't believe they've ever done. We have a little thing on the deal. Let's go to the next slide. Here's the path. If you say, this is my sexual sin, it makes me feel so good, I don't want to stop it. I'm just telling you what could end up happening. And because, listen, sex and sexual sin and lust and porn and adultery and one-night stands and friends with benefits makes all sorts of promises that it will never deliver upon. It's empty, it's hollow, it will bait you, it will tempt you, and then it will shame you. And this is the process that some of you who are on this camp, like, oh, that's my sin, that's my deal, that's private. This, you shouldn't be talking about that in church. This is my privacy and the privacy of my home. <sighs> no, this is your Jesus follower in his kingdom, and this is what he says. If you decide to do that, what you'll start doing is you'll just tolerate it. With the attitudes we just talked about, whoa, that's my deal. After you tolerate it, when you don't see that porn, when you don't have that physical feeling, when you don't get whatever sexual deal it is, there'll start to be a little draw, like, oh, man, I just need to see some porn again. I just need to have another orgasm. I just need to see that person. I just need to talk to Tommy because he understands me. And you'll feel a sense of withdrawal from it. Then you'll start to deceive yourselves. And Christians who know the Bible, who've been raised in churches, who showed up at Sunday school, are the worst self-deceivers in the world. Because you'll start to say things like this. Well, you know, the Bible never actually says this is a sin. Or you'll say things like, ah, it's only pictures. It's just conversations. Oh, well, in my heart, we're married. And you'll start deceiving yourself. Then you'll get to a point where you're like, I'm done fighting. I don't even want to try. I don't even have any willpower. Just bring it all on. And you'll jump in that cesspool of sex. And then you will one day end up at this last point where there's a distortion of intention. 
where what started off as one minute looking at porn has now turned into one hour or one afternoon. You can't get enough. What was just, oh man, you know, well, I'll just feel her breasts. I'll just miss around. We won't go anything below the belt. Now isn't enough. And there's a distortion of attention. And you know this happens, folks. What you start doing after you go through these steps of self-deception and loss of willpower gets to the point where that's not sufficient enough for you anymore. Or whatever itch it used to scratch, it ain't scratching anymore. And so you start taking step after step after step. I have talked to guys. First it was looking at porn. Then it was sending naked pictures. Then it's sobbing with shame how in the world did I send a naked picture of my erection to some other woman? Because what started off innocently didn't scratch the itch anymore, and you kept going. And that's between you and God, but this is what it's going to get to. Then there's others of us. We'll be over here. <clears throat> and you're thinking, Peter, man. This is where I am. I struggle with this. I have a hard time with this. How do I deal with this? How do I do it? How do I be pure sexually? Here's some thoughts for you. If you're at a place where, man, the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you want to work on this, here's some thoughts for you. And the first thing is this. Here's some principles, some big thoughts on how we can pursue sexually pure hearts. Listen, this is so important. You are responsible... God is responsible. When it comes to dealing with issues of sexual sin or any sin, you are responsible and God is responsible. Two people that are engaged in this process of dealing with the sin. Look at the verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation. That's not talking about having your sins forgiven. Salvation refers to, also refers to sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process of doing away with sin. And what the Bible says is you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do it. You do things. You obey. You take steps. But there's another verse, for it is God who works in you. And what the verse says is God does two things. God gives you the will and the desire to pursue holiness. And God gives you the underlying power to ultimately do it. When you are going to face and when I'm going to deal with issues of sexual sin and pursuing sexual purity, you are responsible. God is responsible. And too often in too many churches, we make it one or the other. Where it's all about us and all about legalism. Do it all on your own. Do it, do it. Or we make it all about, man, just let go and let God. No. You are responsible But thank God that God is always responsible. Second principle we see in this is that, and listen, you are able to avoid sexual sin. This is where I started yelling at Tebow, my dog. I'll try not to yell at you. You are able to avoid sexual sin. Maybe I'm getting old. Maybe I'm getting crotchety. I don't know. But people come to me, I just can't stop having sex with that person. Yes, you can. 
I just can't. I tried it. I tried to stop looking at porn. I just can't do it. It's too hard. I did it for an hour, and then the next... Oh, listen. This is the problem. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I think it's up there. I hope it's up there. This is what it says. We've talked about it before in our series on Corinthians, but listen. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. There will not come a temptation that is so great that will trump your ability to fight it and to remain pure. That's what it's saying. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Why? That you may give in to it? No, that you may endure it. What God is saying is that no matter what temptation you face, sexual or otherwise, no matter how much you like having sex, how much you like porn, how much you like talking to your tennis pro to get your emotional vibes that your husband doesn't give you, no matter how much all that temptation is, it's never going to be so much that it will smother you that you can't fight it and endure it. So here's the problem, and here's why I get frustrated. Because if, you, if that's what God says, that no matter what you face, you will be able to endure it and not give in to the sin. That is what Corinthians says. But if you come to me and say, I just can't stop. Okay. One of you is lying. Either God's lying when he says that it won't be too much for you to give in to sin, or you're lying when you say, I just can't stop. And I don't think it's God's who's lying in this case. Here's the problem. Let's just man up. The problem's not that you can't stop. The problem's that you don't want to stop. Just be honest. At least be a man or a woman. Don't give me this... I almost said BS, but that wouldn't be good. Don't give me this nonsense that you can't stop. At least come into our office and say, I'm a pervert. I like it. I don't want to stop. Okay, good. You're being honest. And I'm going to steal a Driscoll line here. I've been very good not to, but I'm doing it. Listen, this is true. At the end of the day, the deal is that some of you would rather be naked or see naked people than please Jesus. You are able to avoid sexual sin. The problem is, in my heart and in your heart, you don't want to. The next thing we see is if we get to a point where we want to avoid it, the third thing we see is you must flee from sexual sin. We've all probably heard that verse where it says, I'm going to read it. Starting in 17 of chapter 6. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That if you are a follower of Christ, somehow supernaturally, you are joined with Jesus and he is with you all the time and everywhere. And then, because of that, It says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee! Don't flirt. Don't manage. Don't try to control it. Flee. And the next principle we see, getting back to what Jesus said in Matthew, some of us need to do whatever is necessary to flee. Some of us need to start gouging out some eyes and chopping off some hands to flee. Some of you need to unfriend that person on Facebook. Oh, that's so mean. Come on, give me a break. Some of you need to take your iPad, your iPhone, your Mac, and throw it out. Don't throw it out the window. Get rid of it. I can't. I want my email. You can. You don't want to. So big deal, you can't play Angry Birds, but maybe you'll be a sexually pure person. 
Some of you, if you have come up to the line with somebody in your office, and man, if the ping pong has gotten so hot and heavy, if you've crossed that line, you know what you need to do? You need to ask for a transfer. You need to flip burgers at another Burger King. You need to brew coffee at a different Starbucks. You need to go to a different corporate office. Oh, Peter, I can't. That's so... Yes. Gouging at eyes and chopping off hands isn't a fun thing. And I would rather, and we would rather, and God would rather have you. You, I can't transfer. I'll lose my job. Fine. It is worth losing your job to save your marriage. Some of you won't do it. And you'll stay in that office with that sexy little thing or with that guy that means so much or single people. You'll do the same thing in whatever way it is. You won't move out. You'll keep shacking up with that guy or girl. Ugh. Because, oh, that, man, seriously, that's like kind of extreme, Peter. Chopping off hands and gouging out eyes is extreme. And I love this last one. This is good. And, you know, I've kind of thinking of different verses and studying and this week. When you flee... If we are called to be people who Jesus follows who avoid adultery, if Jesus followers have sexually pure hearts, if Jesus followers take serious steps to respond to the seriousness of a sexually impure heart, and we know we are responsible and God is responsible, you are able to avoid sexual sin. You must flee from sexual sin. You must do whatever is necessary to flee. The last point, and this is the most important point, getting back to our Philippians verse, when you flee the sin, run to Jesus. Look at what it says in Hebrews, Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just like you are, yet without sin. And so what are we supposed to do in response to that? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to do what? Come on. To help when? In your time of need. See, what we do is, oh, I can't stop looking at the porn. Oh, I can't do it. Okay, just one little look. Click. Oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Look, it's great to run to Jesus when you sin, but this is saying run to Jesus before you sin. When you flee the sin Run to Jesus. And I don't mean in some spiritual, I don't know what that means. I mean, you pray, dear God, there's my computer. Jesus, I need your help to not look at that thing. Because physically, everything inside me just wants to look. I just want to talk to that person. I, want to, I physically want to go back to the Starbucks. I physically want to talk to my best friend's husband because they understand. I, oh. In that moment, you pray. Because God is either telling the truth when he tells you these things or he's lying. And you say, God, I cannot fight this on my own. I will do what is necessary, but I need your spirit. When you flee the sin, don't run to a bunch of people to tell them what a bad pervert you are. Run to Jesus. People who are subjects of Jesus, followers of Jesus, avoid adultery. Followers of Jesus have sexually pure hearts. Followers of Jesus take serious steps to deal with the seriousness of sexual sin in their hearts. 
There's so much that God wants to do in your life. And you're missing out on so much because you'd rather see somebody naked who's not your wife. A few final thoughts. We're going to be a place, we're going to be a church that's going to talk honestly about things like this. And we're going to talk bluntly and we're going to call you guys as your shepherds to excellence. And we're going to call you hard and passionately. But you know what? We also realize that we're going to be a place where people fall and they sin. And let's not be a group. Let's be a group that calls one another purity, but let's not shoot our wounded soldiers. Second big principle is if sexual sin is part of your past, and if this sermon has left you with all this shame and you're a Christian, but you're thinking now, God doesn't love me, I mess. Listen, if you're a Christian, and sexual sin is part of your past, this is what you need to know, that there is forgiveness. And if you've genuinely put your faith in Christ, you have been forgiven of that sin, and there is no more condemnation. Are there consequences that still linger? Yes. Are there parts of your story that God's going to need to work to redeem? Yes. But there is not any condemnation. You are forgiven and pure in Jesus. Some of you are probably victims of this because your husband's a pervert or because your wife's cheated on you or because some guy told you all these promises about he left you, he got his 10 seconds of pleasure and then threw you away and you're just feeling hurt and wounded and ashamed. And the only thing I can offer to you is Jesus. We're going to sing songs about draw me close, Jesus. You're all I need. Some of you need to sing that song in worship because really you need him to help you be pure. Others of you need to draw near to Jesus for the comfort to help you deal with the shame and guilt that you may be feeling. And finally, whether it's the sin of sexual immorality, whether it's the sin of pride, conversations like this when we just take a second and think about it. And we think about how far off the mark we are from what Jesus wants. It's texts, it's sermons like this that make us realize how desperately we need a Savior to do what to save us and to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. I don't know where you are. For those of you that are feeling wounded because of how you've been treated sexually, man, I can only offer you Jesus' comfort and grace. For those of you that the Holy Spirit's convicting, and you need to draw near to Jesus and affirm he's all you need, you need to do it, and you need to depend upon him to do it as well. And I'm going to call the worship team up here, and we're going to sing and worship together. Let me say this. We, you know... Imagine if there was that PowerPoint right now. Everything in your heart that you've ever done or ever been a victim of was flashed up on the screen. I know that you wouldn't be listening to me. And I know I probably wouldn't be talking to you. So if this has brought up things in your past that are painful, this is, we we don't want to bring things up and leave you there. Man, some of you need to call one of the pastors. Some of you need to call Dr. McGee and get some counseling if we've tweaked things that you need to deal with. Um, Let me pray. Father, I trust your spirit. These are your words. These are your instructions about what type of people we're to be. And this issue, God, sidetracks so many people in guilt and in shame and gets them locked in sin and the vortex of it. Um, 
And we do need you, Jesus. So I pray that your spirit will encourage, will convict, will shape, will transform us so that we might be people who live well and unashamedly for your glory.